This is an ABC podcast. Well, Tegan, another week, family free of uh, the dreaded. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a bit like that, isn't it? You sort of, you go week by week. I was at something on the weekend, someone's come down with COVID since then. It's sort of like playing a bit of a cat and mouse game. Yeah, super spreader birthday events is what I'm hearing. Mm. Anyway, I guess we're still doing a podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Wednesday the 11th of May 2022. And Norman, you and I have both had multiple vaccinations against COVID and that's fantastic. We know that it prevents us definitely against severe disease and death and it does a good, good-ish good job of protecting us against infection at all. But one of the other big questions that's around with COVID is long COVID, those prolonged symptoms that some people have. Some people find them very debilitating and they go on for a long time. And so there's questions around how your vaccination status protects you against long COVID if you do encounter the virus and catch it. Yeah, well, there's good news I suppose some bad news about this. Well, first of all, anybody listening to Coronacasts who's had uh, Omicron in the last few weeks will know that it tends to knock you about for about three or four weeks um, with brain fog and a cough and so on, and that tends to go. But the question is, long COVID kind of defined as people getting symptoms after four weeks. So it's not after, but they continue after four weeks. And the British have done a self-reported survey published by the the Office of National Statistics, and they've particularly looked at vaccinated people. So the good news is that if you are unvaccinated or in the first two years of the pandemic, they estimated the incidence of long COVID could anywhere between 30% and 50% of cases, maybe probably averaged out about around about 30% was the estimate. And I think the Australian statistics would suggest 30%. They particularly looked at double and triple vaccinated people. And what they found was that if you were triple vaccinated, that dropped right back to eight or 9%. So the bad news is that's still a pretty decent proportion of people though, right? Yes, but it's about a third of what, even less than a third of what what it was. And in the United Kingdom, that amounts to 1.8 million people. So it's a lot of people in the system who actually have persistent symptoms. And as we have high infection rates in Australia, we are also going to see a flow through. So it's, it's, it's a bit like the death story. You know, we have a low rate of deaths, but we have large numbers because large numbers of people are getting infected, you you would have to assume that that's what's you know that that similar statistic would happen here in triple vaccinated people, slightly higher in people who are double vaccinated. Interestingly, though, the incidence of long COVID in triple vaccinated people is a bit higher with Omicron than Delta. And this just simply may reflect a, a slightly l- lower vaccine effectiveness uh, with Omicron compared to Delta. So when you've got people with prolonged symptoms, what kind of care do they need? What sort of additional strain is this putting on the healthcare system? Because I know at least here in Queensland, um, the Queensland branch of the Australian Medical Association is calling for long COVID clinics. Is that something that we should be looking at? Well, how you look after people with long COVID is an open question because it's we've only known about it for a couple of years. Interesting research from the Kirby Institute has followed people through with long COVID and analysed their immune system and found there are immune abnormalities stretching out to about eight months, which are very specific. And some of those may be tractable to treatment. In other words, there are drugs around which could actually help 
the immune deficit that's there in these people. When I say deficit, it's not so much deficit, it's more of an immune abnormality. So it is possible moving down the track that we will have treatments for long COVID or people with specific uh, immune abnormalities. But you know, the extent to which measured exercise can help, whether or not um, if people have got psychological effects, treating those psychological effects will help their overall physical well-being. This is still relatively unknown territory in terms of evidence. When you say immune abnormalities, is that sort of like how measles can kind of knock out your pre-existing uh, immune memory on some things? Is, are people more susceptible to future infections after a COVID infection? Is that what you mean by that? It's more of a pattern. As we've described many times on Chronocast with my amateur description of the immune system, the immune system comes in waves in terms of its response to an infection or an assault. So the first wave is called innate immunity. And this is just a general barrage that's not specific, that really sets up flak, if you like, for whatever is coming in. And it causes inflammation, so additional blood supply, more white blood cells. And what you find in people who are uh, who have long COVID is that they have highly activated immune innate immunity. So, in other words, that first level of immunity is overactive. Now, that's not a surprise because um, it's well known that you get inflammation as an as a result of long COVID, or some people do. That's it can affect your heart, it can affect your brain, which is why there's an increased risk of coronary heart disease in the year afterwards and maybe some brain effects as well. But also there's uh, underneath all that, and when you start to get to a degree of specificity, there are these chemical messengers in the immune system called interferons. And those are uh, affected. In other words, they're not exerting an anti-inflammatory effect, as you'd expect, as a counterbalance to the inflammation. So there, there are drugs known that interfere with these interferons, and uh, that's where the therapeutic benefit may occur. Right. Well, we're still getting heaps of questions from people uh, submitting them at abc.net.au slash coronacast, and you still can do that if you want to. And quite a few of the questions in the last week or so, Norman, have been about the idea of second-generation COVID vaccines and whether we're going to need to keep creating new technologies for vaccines or whether we'll get to a stage soon or if we're, we're there already where we're just going to be updating the vaccine technologies that we've already got for new variants. We're not there already. If we just take influenza vaccine, we still don't have a universal influenza vaccine where you get it and it's going to cover all variants of influenza moving into the future. We're always renewing. Also, the influenza vaccine tends to is a killed vaccine, so it's not as effective on the immune system as a live vaccine, although they are developing, Novavax is developing an influenza vaccine using their technology. There's going to be mRNA influenza vaccines, which should get a better immune response. Then there's, with COVID, again, you want a vaccine that's going to cover future variants better than the existing ones do even though they're doing a pretty good job of protecting against severe disease. So where the focus is, and for example, the Doherty Institute is producing a second generation vaccine, which focuses on what's called the receptor binding domain, which is part of the spike where the virus connects with the body. And it's thought there are elements in the, in the, in the receptor binding domain, this locking mechanism or docking mechanism, I should say, that might not change that much. And if you could get to that 
core area, you might actually have a second generation vaccine that's got a bright, a, a wider applicability to variants, present variants and future variants. But there are other versions of second generation vaccines as well. So we're still a fair way from vaccines which do the long term job we're looking for in a highly variable world. Because remember, what's likely to happen with COVID is you know, we're always asked on CoronaCast, is this the end of the pandemic? Well, it's going to evolve into a bit like the flu, although, although it's a more severe disease than the flu, where we are, we've got natural infection, we've got vaccines, and that's going to get us by for a few years. And then every so often, it'll go back into animals, shoot back out, and we'll have another COVID pandemic in the same way as we have recurrent flu pandemics. And the ideal situation would be is that we've got a second or third generation COVID vaccine that can cope with an entirely new variant. Well, you mentioned flu and we've had someone else writing in basically sounding the alarm, saying that they've had a massive flu outbreak at the school that their kids go to. They've been out with the flu, not COVID, and it's a bigger outbreak than any COVID they've had up to date. This person's daughter had a high fever for three days and they say it must be happening elsewhere, but they haven't seen any news. They were booked to get the flu shot the week they got infected. I thought I had more time. People need to know. People do need to know the flu season is hitting earlier than expected and you should be getting out and bearing your arm in your pharmacy or with your GP and that's young kids, it's people over 65, it's people with comorbidities but it's basically all of us. I've had mine, you should all go and get yours. I've had mine. We're conscious, you go and get yours. And then another thing that was a feature very early in the pandemic and has sort of dropped off a little bit is this sense of washing our hands. We talked a lot about washing our hands for 20 seconds or more. Uh, I think it's really important to remind people to not not wash your hands, but there is increasingly studies showing that it's not really relevant in how COVID spreads. Well, washing the hands is probably a bit different because... Washing hands is a really good thing to do, and you should keep on you should keep on doing that for all sorts of reasons, uh, particularly when you've been to the bathroom. But if you've got a cold, wash your hands because you can spread it from your hands. But what they looked at in this particular study, which came out recently, was fomites, which is essentially uh, suspensions in droplets of the of the virus, which is what we're all paranoid about. Two years ago, should we wash our oranges from the supermarket? Is it going to be on cardboard that's coming through the the post and so on, and cut long story short, what they showed in a highly infectious environment, a small study, but a highly infectious environment, is that whilst you do get fomites, they do land on surfaces, the chances of them actually spreading infection are vanishingly low. Well, that is one small, small, very small silver lining. Yeah, stop washing your oranges, but continue washing your hands. That's right, don't forget your hands. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's Coronacast, but of course we'll be back in your feed again next Wednesday. We'll see you then. Thank you.